inner caucus as a whole, it, it seems like it, it is kind of like a hatchery problem. Um, mm-hmm. Common contaminant in the hatchery, in dead embryos and hatcheries. Um, so we've been following it there and, and it makes sense because it's one of the dominant commensals in the poultry micro, poultry gut microbiota. However, there have emerged these pathogenic strains that are physically able to translocate the gut through a mechanism that's more or less unknown and cause a sepsis. And then the paralytic form of the disease is when they come back out in the spinal lesion and cause a compressive spinal mm. lesion that paralyzes the birds. So that's a, that pathogenesis has always fascinated me. A whole new era of communication in the poultry industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds of the global poultry industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Adaseo provides nutritional solutions and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. Ivonic Animal Nutrition, we are sciencing the global food challenge. AB Vista offers pioneering products and technical services tailored to the poultry industry to help them succeed. Natural Biologics is looking deeper to find the natural solutions to your poultry health challenges. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and everything that's working in the global poultry industry. Welcome to the Poultry Podcast Show. Today, I'm here with Grayson Walker. Welcome to the podcast, Grayson. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm really excited to have a chat with you today um, about some of the different topics of how you're involved with poultry. But first, I want to hear, how how did you get into chickens? How did you make poultry (laughs) your path? Yeah, that's that's like one of my favorite questions ever to ask anybody in this field because it's never the same answer. It's always like this off the wall zigzag type of journey, but it, it does have some common themes. So I grew up and the first theme is like, I didn't grow up around poultry. Or I didn't do poultry as a, a kid or whatever. Um, that's me. Uh, I grew up in Western North Carolina. Most of the poultry production is concentrated in like the eastern part of the state. So I didn't grow up really around poultry, but I always knew that I wanted to be a veterinarian, right? That's like another common theme. So uh, my goal was to go to NC State University and be a veterinarian. So fast forward to when I got to NC State, I wanted uh, to kind of diversify my, my vet school application and undergraduate and I started working in the lab of Dr. John Brake as an undergraduate research researcher, and I loved it. Um, he was an incredible mentor to me, and I just loved the research. Uh, he did. He ran a nutritional physiology lab, and I was more interested in like obviously diseases of poultry. And and when I told him that, he's like, "Well, I have a project looking at this feed additive control." approach for salmonella. So I started on that as an undergraduate and then that turned into a master's thesis. So I stayed for my master's degree in his lab. I loved it so much, but I still kind of always had questions uh, about diseases and host pathogen interactions. So 
that's when uh, I stumbled upon the opportunity to do a combined DVM PhD degree at North Carolina State University. So I've got my PhD in infectious diseases there and um, I'm currently finishing vet school right now. So it's been a really fun ride. So again, no interest in poultry, hardcore interest in poultry, go back to vet school, still keeping that interest in poultry, and then focusing a little bit more on like the nitty gritty of bacterial pathogens that we deal with in poultry. It's been a fun ride. A worldwide leader in animal nutrition, Addis Sayo's portfolio of products includes methionine, the full range of vitamins, enzymes, organic selenium, probiotics, mycotoxin management strategies, and palatability products. With such a diverse offering, Adiseo supports its customers with a broad range of expertise, tools, and services to help them maintain a competitive advantage. Adiseo, fueling predictable profits. To learn more, visit Adiseo at www.adiseo.com. Gosh, that um, you love school. Yep. <laughs> I can tell <laughs> you've spent quite a lot of time there. So, for some of the people that might be interested in that path, I know the uh, DVM PhD programs can vary. But can you just describe? Did you? I know some programs that do two years of vet school, do the PhD sandwich in the middle, do two years of vet school, and some have you do them simultaneously. What does your program look like? Yeah, you nailed it. Uh, that's how NC State does it. It's basically one year of lab rotations, two years of vet school, then you come out and the PhD, the bulk of it is sandwiched in the middle, and then you come back into vet school. Entirely new class, um, oh. nine yards. So about the quickest yeah. you can do it at NC State is seven years, and, and yeah. I'm on that track to, to finish in, in like that seven-year time frame. So yeah, I started in 2017, the vet school portion. Yeah. Um, that being said, there's a lot of blurred lines there. Uh, I yeah. feel like I've been doing my PhD in the background the whole time I was in the vet school portion. And then now that I'm finished with my PhD, I'm still doing a lot of research, uh, especially yeah. in my clinical year. I've scheduled a lot of externships that revolve around research pertaining to like mostly stuff that kind of spawned in during my PhD work and also trying yeah. to wrap up some projects from that too. So it's a really flexible yeah. program and I really enjoyed it a lot. Gosh, that sounds really cool. But I have to ask, so from the time when you started your PhD to going back to your last few years of vet school, it's a different group of people. I mean, yeah. fashion wise, it's got to be completely different than when you started, right? <laughs> Especially the way it worked out for me because um, I, I joined a class that kind of started during the pandemic. So yeah. uh, they didn't really know each other and I didn't know them. So I, I assimilated quite well. And I've, yeah. just like in the first class I've joined, I've, I've made some really good friends. So yeah. I kind of like to think Gosh. of it as kind of double dipping. Like, you know, anytime yeah. you graduate from any degree program, you have like a cohort of yeah. people who become your colleagues. And instead oh, of yeah. 100 of those, I get 200 of those, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> is one way to look at it. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, it's a lot of new names to remember, too. And yeah. <laughs> but that, that sounds like a really neat way. On and off with the yeah. people, the research, <laughs> the veterinary yeah. curriculum, which is completely different from like doing a master's or a PhD in any kind of poultry related discipline. Oh, gosh. Yeah. 
Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the diseases that you've been focusing on and why? I mean, some of them are obvious. Salmonella is obvious, right? But maybe there are some other reasons to focus on some of the other diseases or interesting things that you found during your research. Yeah, sure. So salmonella is is how I cut my teeth in poultry research, I guess. And using like a feed additive control approach, uh, like I'd describe it as an on-farm intervention control mm-hmm. approach to salmonella. And that was really fun. I, I used basically a, a yeast-derived feed additive and looked at it. We had the kind of a unique setup at NC State. Um, we had a fully vertically integrated research operation, which I think is mm. cool because that kind of mirrors how the industry works. So mm-hmm. we had... Uh, rotation of broiler breeder flocks. I was involved in the management of those. Uh, we had an on-site hatchery, and then we had several broiler houses, and we even had a processing plant on-site. So we were literally able to take our research from the breeder level to the broiler level all the way to like the processing step, which I thought was really cool because, as we know, salmonella is like this insidious pathogen that like hides out and like very different aspects of the of the poultry production chain. So to be able to follow that during my master's degree was really cool. And of course, I can't forget the feed mill. The feed mill is an important component of that vertically integrated research operation at NC State mm-hmm. as well. So that was awesome. Um, I really got involved in the management of broiler breeders, which isn't something people really have the opportunity to get exposed to very often. Yeah. And to be able to follow that from the parent level to the progeny was really neat. That's kind of how I got my interest in the epidemiology side of things. And my time at vet school started with a little project where I simply just like kind of genotyped my different salmonella isolates I had collected in this, this research operation over the years. And then when I discovered some of these molecular tools to characterize pathogens, I got really interested in that. Um, so Dr. Luke Borst was my mentor for my PhD and at the vet school. Uh, he has made his name in the world of poultry with Enterococcus Secorum research. Mm. And although I've kind of picked up some of those leftover projects now, um, my PhD research was more on an observation he had made way back when he was in vet school. And that was that Enterococcus, not necessarily Enterococcus secorum, but other species of Enterococcus, Fucalus, uh, PCM, are often co-isolated with pathogenic E. coli. Mm-hmm. And I had dealt with cholebacillosis, which is the disease caused by avian pathogenic E. coli, some in my master's degree, and I was really interested in that. So my PhD focused on kind of these polymicrobial interactions of E. coli and Enterococcus. And how those two pathogens together might enhance the virulence, potentiate E. coli and cholebacillosis and whatnot. So um, I often like to say, you know, you could you could write a PH like a dissertation, a PhD dissertation on pathogen to pathogen interactions, host pathogen interactions, like the immunology that's involved with that. It was super broad, but it was super fun. And um, I really learned a lot about, you know, some some pathogens other than salmonella that are a huge problem yeah. for the poultry industry globally. Yeah. And, and here lately I've been doing a little bit more Enterococcus secorum research. And that one is for those who don't know the causative agent of kinky back or enterococcal spondylitis and mm-hmm. broiler production, which is a 
paralytic disease of, of later production. I was just going to ask you, could you describe, could you describe some of the things that happen with the different Enterococcus issues? I know there's a few different pathogens within that category. Yeah. They're so, not always on top of people's heads because they're not always food foreign pathogens, right? They're, they cause other issues. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and I kind of group these broadly into like enteric pathogens. And I always like to remind people with, with enteric pathogens, like sometimes they're commensals and then they're pathogenic mm-hmm. strains. So that's very true with E. coli. That's also true with enterococcus. And just as an example, it's, it's a pretty common probiotic that, um, as I understand, is, is supplemented in the feed, different strains of enterococcus. Um, so it's a genus that comprises multiple species. The, the two that are probably of most concern with poultry are enterococcus faecalis and enterococcus sicorum. So enterococcus faecalis causes a disease called amyloid arthropathy, and we've kind of got a, a project going investigating the molecular epidemiology with that, but that's entirely new to me. Um, I've focused more on it as like an agent in sepsis and septicemic infections in poultry. And it's what I looked at it in the context of how it interacts with E. coli to make those infections more severe. It, as we learn more about enterococcus as a whole, it, it seems like it, it is kind of like a hatchery problem. Um, mm-hmm. Common contaminant in the hatchery, in dead embryos and hatcheries. Um, so we've been following it there and, and it makes sense because it's one of the dominant commensals in the poultry micro, poultry gut microbiota. However, there have emerged these pathogenic strains that are physically able to translocate the gut through a mechanism that's more or less unknown and cause a sepsis. And then the paralytic form of the disease is when they come back out in this spinal lesion and cause a compressive spinal mm-hmm. lesion that paralyzes the birds. So that's a, that pathogenesis has always fascinated me. And it, it yeah. fascinated Dr. Morse too. He, he's a veterinary pathologist who, who was just walking down the hall one day and saw a poster of this disease. And he asked, he said, why there? Why, why does it cause this lesion in the spinal column of a chicken? It, it just doesn't, it's not typical, right? So if you think about a pathogen that is part of your dominant, like commensal gut microflora that's able to leave your gut and cause a disease, a paralytic disease that's not curable somewhere outside of your gut, it's pretty terrifying. <laughs> so That was the exact word that was in my head was terrifying. <laughs> yeah, it's just really horrible um, because the paralytic form of the disease happens near the end of production. And that's when there's been so much invested in a broiler chicken. And right before it goes to market, it either gets cold because it's paralyzed. And it's also a huge welfare concern because these birds can't get to feed or water. Um, And that's kind of just another aspect of it that just makes it a horrible disease. So um, it came about in the United States in the 2000s. It was kind of an emerging disease then. And it's still causing problems today. Uh, what's interesting about it is, of course, the more we study these pathogens, the more we realize how how much they change and how we can't really, it's like an arms race against them. Like they've already changed by the time we figure something out about them. 
Mm-hmm. And what we've found is that, and mostly anecdotal evidence, but that the sepsis form of the disease is actually causing a lot of earlier mortality. So now ah. it's the question of like, has the bug changed or has have the poultry changed? You know, the the host, we, we don't know. And, and we've got some project looking at that. Mm-hmm. As well as just being able to diagnose it and isolate and diagnose um, this in the first place. Because like I said, yeah. it's a, it's everywhere and there are commensal and pathogenic strains. So part of our message is, is trying to find like, find the pathogenic strains and where they're at because again, intercoccus quorum is a, is a dominant commensal of, of the poultry microbiota. So it's kind of hard. Yeah. So are, do you have any developing recommendations maybe at the hatchery level, um, especially if it's in some of the embryos that stop development? Do you have any recommendations that would maybe be good for a hatchery to follow if, if you think one of the main causes is at the hatchery? Yeah, that's a really good question. And, and one of the ones I've, I've been told and heard throughout the years is um, make sure you don't have a big, because like, and I'm pretty far removed from the hatchery, like day-to-day yeah. things that go on in the hatchery. But um, I think of like an egg incubator. I think of it also like a bacteria incubator. because that's what it is it's a perfect temperature it's the perfect humidity like not only are you growing you know chicks but whatever bacteria are there you're growing those too so don't set floor eggs um Mm. sometimes that's hard because you know it's it's always a cost benefit analysis right and um if you don't have enough eggs to set, you want to keep incubators full. So, I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes you have to, but I think it starts with, you know, what you put in that incubator, making mm-hmm. sure it's as clean as possible. And then you can take that all the way back to the management of your breeders even mm-hmm. and like wet feces and problems that are associated with like floor eggs or surface contamination of eggs. Um, and then, you know, I, I think an important part is to remove unviable embryos as mm. soon as possible. And, you know, that may or may not be practical. I understand like in thousands and thousands of eggs situation, but um, as I understand it, there's technology that allows you to, to discern like non-viable embryos and, and then those get thrown out at transfer. Um, mm. during yeah. the at transfer. So because, what these I think of these as like ticking time bombs because they it's an egg that's a perfect medium to grow bacteria with the perfect conditions to grow bacteria. And if the egg itself is contaminated, if the embryo died and is contaminated, then it can seed those pathogens to everything else. So it's kind of like an explosion going off in the hatchery is how in the in the hatching baskets is how I think of it. And I guess that's part of what we what we now know is like this horizontal transmission of a lot of these pathogens begins before the chicks even hit the floor at the farm. Yeah. So those are just some thoughts I have. Uh, is it practical? Maybe not always, but um, yeah. I think we can get there, you know, so it really comes down to, to sanitation and just being smart about contaminants that, that enter the incubator in the first place. Yeah. So do you have any theories as to why this, enteric pathogen or commensal, whichever version you're talking about, 
why it's leaving the gut, going elsewhere, and then coming back. Like, what what do you think about that? <laughs> it seems like an interesting trafficking pathway. It is the way I the way I think about it is there's like a predisposing lesion in the bird that the bacterium likes, and that's this OCD osteochondrosis desiccans lesion of mm-hmm. the free thoracic vertebra. So not to get in the weeds here, but like the chicken has a fused spinal column except for certain free thoracic vertebra. And and that's a spot that's really prone to getting an OCD lesion. And mm-hmm. for some reason, I don't know, the bacteria come out of the blood and they really like that lesion there. And that's where they mm-hmm. set up shop and make this huge abscess that compresses up on the spinal cord and causes the paralysis. So, so that's one of the magic ingredients of like, the paralytic form of intercoccus secorum infections. As far as sepsis, um, I think a lot of those actually don't start in the gut per se, but they find some other portal of entry, be that the mm-hmm. respiratory tract or mm-hmm. yolk sac infections, I think are, are a big source of septicemic mm-hmm. infections in poultry. So, and then that all goes back to, cleanliness and sanitation when the chicks are very, like, as soon as the chicks hatch, right? Yeah. So I know that you said there was an increase in the occurrence just of kinky back and some of these other things over time. Do you think that has to do with some of the regulations that are being put on hatcheries in terms of these birds are going to an organic flock or these birds are, you know, do you think some of those, the cleaners or the the way we are able or not to treat different health conditions in birds has to do with some of these other issues arising? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I just, one of the biggest problems when you ask poultry veterinarians uh, that they face in the industry, top of the list is always the lack of efficacious drugs to treat some mm. of these diseases. Yeah. And of course, that's in response to a lot of regulatory pressure as we move out of this antibiotic area era um, mm-hmm. more towards the like the post-antibiotic era for pathogen control, um, which is, you know, great in and of itself for different reasons, but it also makes solving the problems we have right now really difficult. Yeah. And I think the the withdrawals and the restrictions on, on certain drugs is a problem. However, the other side of that is a lot of these pathogens are multi-drug resistant and resistant uh, to the drugs that we've been using for years to, to treat them. So, so that's another issue. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, I think that that really contributes to the rise of these. Pat- like if you have a, if you have a small fire in a, in a poultry house and you can't put it out, it's going to spread. Right. Yeah. And, and then you get into trouble later on. Um, yeah. So, and from what I hear lately about the, uh, and again, I don't, I don't know how touchy of a subject this is, but about like no antibiotics ever production is that it's it's really difficult to offer that at a price that consumers are willing to pay. Mm, yeah. So, and again, I think of when I explain this to people, I I try to talk about it like a balance. Like you have you have to balance the bird's health with us offering a product that's affordable for people, a protein mm-hmm. source that's affordable, um, and that that's true for for a lot of the issues we're facing in the poultry industry right now. Yeah. So as you're kind of moving through all of your degrees, has there there been 
I know we have certain opportunities when you're doing a PhD program, you kind of want to focus in on something because you want to graduate at some point and you can't just explore everything. But did anything ever pop up that was really of interest to you that you just didn't have time, you know, to go explore just because you want to graduate someday? <laughs> oh, I don't even know where to start because my, <laughs> like, I'm, my mind's like constantly jumping around to like different things that interest me. I'd say the biggest thing is probably like the food safety side of things. I, mm. I think that's really interesting. And that was like part of the puzzle I, I worked with in my master's degree, but I didn't spend a lot of time in that area. So, so that would be one of them. There are plenty of other pathogens <laughs> that, you know, I've, I've worked with a little bit, but never really, um, that never really took hold. Campylobacter mm-hmm. be one. Of course, that's more of a human pathogen, not necessarily yeah. a, a poultry pathogen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I would say on the food safety side of things, I, I enjoy like processing. I think that's an interesting process and, and yeah. to be able to, to do something there that makes our food safer, safer to consume, I think is really cool. Yeah. So that, that's the first one that comes to my mind. So we, um, my group does a fair bit of work with some different pathogens and I, I can appreciate some of the pathogens for the evasion techniques, you know, that they've come up with like upregulation of IL-10 or, you know, some other things, but um, are there any pathogens that you've been working with that you think, wow, this really in the future could be a bigger problem than it is currently if we don't do something about it. It sounds like kinky back is on the list right? Is yeah. there something else that we're not paying good enough attention to that from a veterinary standpoint just might not be on people's radar? Well, again, I'm in, I'm in the bacterial world and yeah. so my mind goes to the issue of, and this is a giant can of worms, but I'm going to go ahead and open it. The issue of E. coli contamination and having mm. these pathogenic E. coli in the food supply. Now, yeah. People will tell you different things uh, about regarding the transmission of of E. coli from a food source to humans. Um, I don't necessarily think it's been proven that that that's occurred. And, and by proven, I mean like there's a disease in chickens caused by E. coli that gets transmitted through the food chain that causes a disease such as probably the most famous one would be like a urinary tract infection in humans mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. some kind of sepsis in humans. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that's been fully proven yet, but I think that's a risk. And, you know, I guess if we, to think about treating something that's like E. coli, like salmonella, <laughs> I think that's way in the future, but it's possible. So do you think from a regulatory standpoint, that's kind of where that needs to go is more, more testing? more frequent testing or yeah and it actually has gone that way um Mm -hmm. whether people realize it or not i suppose is that one of the projects we have we work with at nc state is the genome tracker uh, Mm. network and this is a project that is run through the fda and what they do is they just sequence pathogens from animal sources and this could be like a food source or Mm -hmm. um there's also some projects through through the FDA that just are involved with surveillance of retail meat, where we literally go out, purchase retail meat from different grocery stores across North Carolina and, and see what's there. Yeah. And a lot of this 
a lot of these pathogens, pathogens in quotation marks, because they may not actually be confirmed pathogens, but they're mm-hmm. associated with like, they're either E. coli, salmonella, or campylobacter, um, get sequenced and put in a repository. Mm-hmm. And that's so if there ever was an outbreak of human disease attributed to some kind of foodborne exposure, you would already have the sequence and being able to trace that back to, to where it came from. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's more on the surveillance side. The regulatory side, I, I'm not so sure of. I, I feel like regulation has a more of a negative connotation than positive <laughs> connotation in the in the poultry industry. Um, yeah, but yeah, and you know, you try to. I've been trying to kind of keep up over the years with with salmonella being labeled as an adulterant and mm-hmm. and issues like that. And one of the issues with regulation is that I think you have to have the same rules apply to everyone across the board. So, so one particular company or entity doesn't get an unfair advantage. And and I think that can be really hard. So that's just some challenges that, that come to my mind when I think about that and looking at the future. So just a random question, because I don't actually know the answer. So you're doing surveillance. Are you targeting fresh products like something that's not ever been frozen or do they look at fresh frozen and then further process like you know everybody's favorite obviously dinosaur nuggets <laughs> are they testing all sorts <laughs> yeah as and full disclosure this is something run out of dr sid thacker's lab who has yeah. been a another mentor to me at the vet school and um he's he's the lab that runs this project his lab just happens mm-hmm. to be right next to ours so yeah. So there's a little bit of overlap and it's kind of neat because we're, we get a lot of poultry uh, bacterial isolates and, and they oh, yeah. are always looking for more isolates to, to sequence, to add to this database. So it's kind of been a, a good collaboration over the years. Um, and as far as I know, it's mostly fresh products uh, okay. that they, they test and not so much for their processed products. Yeah. That was my guess, but I thought, Maybe for some reason, because the, the the way you're told to cook poultry is similar, right? For fresh versus frozen and make sure it's not touching other stuff and don't wash it or whatever. But my guess was it should be fresh. But then I thought, well, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe they're out there testing all the nuggets. So I don't know. <laughs> uh, sometimes I, I go peek over there on sampling days and, and I've never seen any dinosaur nuggets on, <laughs> on their lab yet. But, Good. Uh, I don't want to know if anything's... There haven't ever been any, but that would be interesting <laughs> to look at the further process side of things. <laughs> It's, it was my assumption that most salmonella or, or some of these foodborne pathogens, freezing them would probably be detrimental. But I guess then again, I don't know. Maybe there are some that are resistant to freezing. Yeah. Um, I mean, the way my, my lab mind thinks about it is the way we preserve bacteria in the lab is either stick them in a minus 20 or a minus 80 degree freezer. Yeah. Or, yeah. You know, so. We're also nice to them, though. So who knows? <laughs> yeah, <true. laughs> Add a lot of uh, like it's in a broth media, but yeah, yeah. So um, I don't know how bacteriocidal freezing is. I think of that as more yeah. of a bacteriostatic yeah. thing. Yeah, that's that's yeah, that's definitely fair point. <laughs> fair point. Um, so as as you're looking to kind of finish your veterinary degree and move on, what do you think 
what are your next steps? Are you, are you thinking you want to combine the, the vet and the research or do you want to go to more diagnostics? Like where do you go with a cool degree like this? I am going to the United States Department of Agriculture. And, oh, awesome. And I could not be more excited about it. Um, so I'll actually, it's kind of interesting. I've, I've done poultry all along and, and I hope to still be involved in poultry, but Mm-hmm. Uh, where I'll be is the Foreign Animal Disease Diagnostic Lab with the USDA. Oh. So um, for those who don't know, they're in the process of a big move right now. It's been historically located at Plum Island in New York, and now mm-hmm. they're moving to Manhattan, Kansas with the National Bio and Agri-Defense Facility. So wow. I was actually part of a fellowship program that funds my, my degree program in exchange for a service commitment after I'm done. Uh, mm-hmm. I say service commitment. I think of I don't think of it as a commitment. I think of it, it was my dream job. Like, yeah, I've always been interested in, you know, what pathogens are out there and, and surveillance and diagnostics. So that's where I'm heading. Of course, the, the foreign animal disease diagnostic lab has, uh, deals with our main concern is like, uh, foot and mouth disease and mm-hmm. classical yeah. swine fever. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's a little bit different. That's, those are not diseases of poultry (laughs) for anyone who doesn't know. Um, But also like the hot path avian influenza is, is a, is a huge problem ongoing. It was horrible last year and everybody seems to kind of be like anxiously waiting to see what, what new things that's going to bring. But, you know, we're coming out of the worst outbreak that we can remember. So um, yeah. But that testing actually isn't done through the Foreign Animal Disease Diagnostic Lab. That's that's done in Ames, Iowa. So. <laughs> Heck yes, my a good friend of mine who is also watching the migratory patterns right now. <laughs> yep, so that's where I'll be, and and I'm really looking forward to it. So I'll be making the move to Manhattan, Kansas, after I finish vet school next May to to start my career with the USDA. So it, I think that's just a testament of you never know where where it's going to take you (laughs) and that it can be, you know, school or research or whatever. The possibilities are endless and and it's been a fun ride and it's only just begun. (laughs) Yeah. Gosh. Well, that does sound like a really cool dream job. So (laughs) congrats in advance. (laughs) Thanks. I'm looking forward to becoming a Midwesterner. (laughs) Oh yeah. Heck yeah. We're nice out here. Um, is there anything that, uh, we haven't covered today that you just wanted to emphasize or, or kind of conclude as we get to the end of the podcast? I don't know. We've talked about a lot of dense stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Really good questions. Um, and I'm afraid if I talk anymore that (laughs) I'll be talking too much. So oh, I well, about, about pathogens and and forever. Very really started making the joke is like I'm because people are in their camps, you know, with with poultry is like, oh, I'm in processing, or oh, I do broilers or layers or turkeys, and I'm like poultry agnostic. Like if it's yeah. a disease that <laughs> if it's a disease of poultry, I'm interested in it. So yeah, oh, I love that. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Start your journey with us at Eastman.com. Fibro Animal Health Corporation. 
Healthy animals, healthy food, healthy world. Your partner for improving animal performance, Berg and Schmidt. AX3 Digest is a highly digestible source of protein with a low level of potassium, giving young animals a healthy start. DSM, helping customers with efficient, sustainable poultry production. Natural Biologics is using cutting-edge science to dig deeper into the poultry health challenges you face. By gathering scientific evidence, they identify the most effective combinations of natural ingredients that improve animal health. Visit naturalbiologics.com poultry to see the newest research in both turkeys and chickens. So before uh, we wrap up the end of the show, I want to ask you the three questions that we ask all of our guests. Um, sure. Our first question is, what is your favorite poultry resource? My favorite poultry resource, I'll, I'll give, I guess, the more academic ones first, um, <laughs> would be Diseases of Poultry. It just mm. released a, a two-volume set that's a, a fantastic resource for all things poultry diseases. And then, of course, I'd I'm always into poultry science and journal of applied poultry research. Um, that being said, with the with the textbooks and and the peer reviewed literature, but I think that like while that's current, it, it's not as current as like what's going on right now because as mm. we know, things take forever to publish and whatnot. So mm-hmm. honestly, mm-hmm. my favorite poultry resource are my friends who yeah. <laughs> are working in the industry and. Yeah. It's kind of neat because here I am still in school, like, but all of the friends I made in graduate school are out in industry or academia and just doing some really cool stuff. And I know anytime I have a question about poultry, I go to them and, and we usually try to meet as regularly as possible, even though we've kind of taken different paths in our, our careers or schooling in my case. (laughs) And And try to discuss like all the hot topics that are going on in the industry right now. So yeah. that's probably my favorite poultry resource are the, the friends and colleagues that are also yeah. in this with me. That, that, that's a great response. <laughs> yeah. Um, our second question is what, what is a favorite non-poultry resource or book? Who? So lately I haven't had much time to, to do much like reading for pleasure because it's all been prepped for, veterinary boards, which I'll take in a little over a month. But that's not like by any means my favorite non-poultry resource. That's just been (laughs) an obligation of mine lately. Um, I don't know. I really like to to eat, first of all. I love food and I love to cook food and I love to travel. So I recently read Kitchen Confidential by Anthony Bourdain. God rest his soul. And that was just a fantastic read that I like joined up on the party way too late, but yeah, it had some really important life lessons like scattered throughout this book that was almost entirely about food. It was, it talked yeah. about like, you know, the culture, the restaurant culture and, and managing people and like being playing part of as a team and, and all these things. So I just think it was a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful book to read. And I just finished that and that was a blast. So Yeah. That's that is that's a really good suggestion. I think I need to check that out. <laughs> yeah. I've started texting other people who like fellow foodies and people like yeah. that. I was like, Have you read this? They're like, yeah, dude, I read that in high school. Like, <laughs> yeah. like I'm like, well, I don't know how it's taken me this long to read it, but I kinda just wanna start it over and read it again because it was awesome. Yeah. Gosh. Do it, man. You- 
It sounds like a great book. Yeah. <laughs> um, so our, our last question of the day is how would you tell somebody who wants to get into the poultry industry, any aspect of it, how would, what's your best advice, uh, advice to be successful? I think mine would be go to conferences. Uh, mm. Number first and foremost, because they're fun, right? Like I've never had a bad time at any PSA or IPPE I've ever gone to. And I don't yeah. know anybody else who's had a bad time there either. So, uh, but it's it's just fun. It always feels like a big family reunion. And even as like some of my things aren't as exactly poultry centered as I would like them to be nowadays, I still try to go to as many different conferences yeah. as I can to, to stay current on what's going on in the terms of research, to meet with mm -hmm. people um, who I haven't seen in a while or who are, I'm separated by distance from. So that's just a blast. And as a graduate student, that always kept me like on top of things with my own research and, and helped me kind of progress through my degree programs. Um, I thought it was intense when I was doing my master's degree with Dr. Brake. It was like he made us submit at least one abstract to every major conference. And mm -hmm. it's like you're constantly like trying to race like, oh, gosh, we have another abstract deadline coming up and then got to give this a world presentation. But then it was cool because like. Not only did it motivate me to like get the data to write an abstract, right? But by the time it came time to summarize it all and defend, I already had most of my story that I'd been giving all along. Um, yeah. And it was already, in theory, peer-reviewed because you yeah. know, I presented it to a jury of my peers, as they say, <laughs> at yeah. one of the conferences and had it kind of evaluated and had a chance for questions. So yeah. that would be my advice for any anybody who's doing a degree in poultry science or related fields it's a to go to conferences present communicate your research i think that's the most important part yeah that that's a really good advice well thank you so much for talking with me today this has been really fun and interesting absolutely thanks again for having me i've had fun yeah i'm always excited to hear about um, other diseases that <laughs> afflict poultry especially when they're maybe up and coming and i don't want to say up and coming because it's been around but we're hearing about more more of it. Me too. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you and have a great afternoon. You too. Thanks so much. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time consuming and requires technical know-how, but don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.